Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of The Platform Station House Audio Series. My good friend and retired CPR conductor Ron Bowman stopped by recently and as usual the conversation turned to me asking Ron about the early days of his railroad career. How is it that a young rookie running trades employee becomes acclimated to the job? What exactly is the spare board? All of this and more coming up on this month's edition of the Platform Station House Audio Series. Ron, I've often heard the term spare board. Can you talk to railroaders and their career and not 30 seconds goes by and you hear about the spare board. You started with CP back in 73 and I believe you were on the spare board. Walk us through what the spare board is and what life was like on the spare board, working off the spare board in 1973. Well, uh, yeah, interesting. Uh, the, it, it, I started on the spare board. It didn't stay there long. And what, what happened, the natural progression was you, you had a, the jobs you had on CPO to London at the time were um, you had the spare board and then you ideally you would go to the freight pools. There was the East Pool to Toronto, the West Pool to Windsor. Uh, and we also had uh, uh, jobs at... Uh, distant terminals like uh, we had jobs running out of Woodstock and we had uh, Hamilton to Goddard's jobs so some of those regular jobs were were desired by uh, em employees with uh, some seniority because uh, for example in the summer they liked to bid in the jobs at Woodstock because they if they had cottages they could go to the cottage every weekend if the job had the weekend off but in the winter people didn't want them because they didn't you had to drive from from London to Woodstock if you lived in London and to work the job and drive home and people didn't want to do that in the winter. Plus there was a lot of switching and that was a lot easier in the summer and the winter. So anyway, um, those jobs had to be staffed uh, with train crews and then uh, the main line trains of course had to be staffed. So what they did for, uh, if somebody took a trip off or um, went on holidays or something, you had the spare board to fill in. Uh, and not only did we have a brakeman spare board, it was a combined spare board with the yard and the road, but we also had uh, the pools and we had a conductor spare board. So if a regular conductor was off or if they run a work train, they would use a spare conductor and two spare draymen. So is a spare board sort of like substitute teachers? Yeah, it's like the substitute teacher idea. So there were a couple things about that. One of them is you may not be quite as knowledgeable about the job if it was one of the because you would also be called if somebody at Woodstock for example was off uh, sick or went on holidays you might go down there for a few days or a week or whatever um, so that was yeah you filled in there and you maybe didn't know the routine or whatever and uh, that affected that sometimes the regular guys would probably fill you in pretty quick <laughs> but well they did but the other thing was on the spare board was interesting we uh, the promotional system on CP, and what I mean by promotional is when a, when a, you went from a brakeman to a conductor, if the conductor's spare board was exhausted and they had an opening for a conductor, let's say a Westpool conductor booked off a trip or something for whatever reason, they would start filling that job from the ranks of trainmen, and it would go to the senior trainman that they could get a hold of to fill in that vacancy. So 
sometimes that that would mean that that senior trainman went uh, filled in that vacancy as a conductor in the east east end let's say and then they would have to get a spare brakeman to fill in that uh, more senior brakeman's position so a lot of times you'd go west on the spare board because the uh, they, the trainman there would be pulled to work as conductors um, another interesting thing that happened just about every night and during the week they ran a train called the Aberdeen Turn to Hamilton, and it was just a dreadful job because it paid very low wages. It paid about uh, 110 miles, and you and you worked all the way, so you'd be switching to Woodstock, Galt, Guelph Junction, Water Down North. So they had two trains that ran together. Usually 54 would, or even later, 942, they'd run around 1830, which is just after supper. Uh, and uh, trainmen, regular trainmen would... would think that it, after that they ran the Aberdeen turn and it was uh, usually right on the heels of the other one so the regular trainmen if they were going to have a trip off in their two weeks uh, in the pool there they would uh, and what I mean by the two week the two week pay period uh, if they got called for the Aberdeen turn that might be the one to miss so they'd call spare crew for it but quite often if they ran out of order they they would book off ahead of time and you'd end up on 54 or 942 which were good jobs because they speculated they stood for the Aberdeen <laughs> turn and booked off on spec so but anyway that was the types of things you got uh, filling in those jobs and the spare board could uh, uh, you could be called at any time you didn't have a clue even in the freight pools you had an idea you were four times out and uh, they were running four trains you'd be on the fourth train but in the sp on the spare board they could call somebody and they miss a call and you could be you could be on the spare board. I one time before Christmas, I was on. I was first up on the spare board for a day and a half, because everybody worked to pay because they knew they were going to get the bills for all the Christmas presents after. So I was a day and a or a week and a half, uh, a day and a half on the spare board, and I made one trip or one and a half trips, I think, in a two week pay period. Was there any sort of a guarantee back then on the spare board? There wasn't at that time. I think later they went to a spare board guarantee, but that was a not in my early career so and a guarantee is uh, a guaranteed minimum pay yeah so many miles period. yeah regardless you'd have to put a ticket in everything was put in on paper tickets and you'd have to put your own ticket in for the the guarantee um the, there was a there was a flip side to that coin and that was the old that old adage of make hay while the sun shines so if you were on the spare board uh we didn't have any rules as to how much rest you had to take at the time or how much you could work so we had some people, we used to say they were very hungry, and they would work uh, double in and out and just make a fortune. Now, uh, we could only book 12 hours at the home terminal in any event, but uh, sometimes you'd come in and the spare board was depleted or only had a couple of people on, and guy, uh, an individual would leave themselves okay or only book five hours rest. But uh, there were times when you were going up and down like a streetcar there. When I first started, they had no men, and... Uh, they sent me to Goderich on a train out of London. Uh, we had a van hop out of London. The Goderich sub had been closed to count of a washout. And we were one of the first, that the first train up there after two or three months it was closed. And that was 28 hours on duty that trip. It was a marathon. And I was only a young man, 20, not quite 21 at the time. And uh, came home and booked 12 hours rest. And I was exhausted. I think I slept the whole thing. And then the phone rang and I was back at 22.30 for the Aberdeen turn that they had held because they had no men until my rest was up. That was what it was like then. And then and then next time you'd be sitting around doing nothing. Um, sometimes when the spare board was pretty lean, uh, some 
people with marginal seniority would bid in jobs at Woodstock because at least they knew they had so many miles they could make in a month. And so it was always a game trying to figure out what jobs to get and trying to put yourself in position to get a good train or whatever. And then there were one-offs the odd time. I did get called in 1976. They had a big ice storm west of London. The wires were down, and which meant they had no signals. So they had a, at that time, conductors would work uh, with cranes and that. Uh, uh, they rode on the track under the, with a conductor uh, being in charge of it. So they called me to be a, a, a brakeman with this conductor on a burrow crane. They were restringing wires and that with the wire gang. And I asked, how long am I going to be? And they said, till further advice. Well, it turns out I was there for, I think, 10 days or something before I come home. So you never Actually knew. out on the train? Oh, out on a flag in the crane. And every day what would happen is we go to the motel. Uh, we stayed at the Cardinal Motel in Thamesville, Ontario. And uh, in the morning, the conductor would knock on the door, and I'd have a quick shower and get head out. And uh, we would uh, we'd go eat breakfast. And then they would take me out on the motor car uh, two miles out from where they're working. And I would sit there all day with a flagging kid. <clears throat> and when trains come, I'd swing them down with the flag and kid and get on, tell them where they were working. And how'd you get lunch out there? They'd bring something out usually, or or if I think, I think the restaurant where we ate breakfast, if I recall, I think they would uh, pack a couple of sandwiches for us, and I'd take them out there. But you didn't have a fridge or anything, and luckily it wasn't raining. I was sitting out there on a pile of ties at the time, and. <laughs> Thinking rail, the railroad life is good? The railroad life is good, and about 100 feet away from me was a deer that had been struck by the train, and it was rotting away. And it was, I was <laughs> That eating. was not lunch. That okay. wasn't. I was eating my lunch. It was this, the scenic part of the uh, Windsor subdivision there. But, but, <laughs> but that's, in Thamesville. But, but that illustrates what you would get on the spare board. You might get called for the London Yard, and you'd go there, and you'd work for uh, five hours and go home and the next time you'd be I was out for a number of days like you just didn't know so I was newly married in 75 and this happened in 76 so I mean you had to have a very resilient spouse that didn't mind being you know leading a life of uh, of no planning no socializing or anything like and was that. it still a two-hour call back in that day? it was a two-hour call so imagine you get a two-hour call for nine days away <laughs> Yeah. They told me, pack a suitcase there. You, we don't know how long you'll be. So I put some extra clothes in there and yeah. and that. Are there extra financial perks uh, when it comes to assignments like that where you're away for... Just the earnings. Just the earnings. Oh, yeah, just yeah. the earnings. I was... Uh, I I'm think, sure you're... Were you getting a per diem for your meals and things well, like that? Well, uh... If you're stuck no, on we a didn't, crane somewhere. we didn't get paid paid by the company at all we were allowed to put in on our tax returns okay you filled in a meal thing on the basis of it but uh, most uh, most people there were at the time there was a fair before computers and that there was there was what I used to call allowance for creative accounting and uh, we could uh, we we could uh, be generous to ourselves in other words some guys would do, they would put in an extra 15 or 20 minutes on their off-duty time to account for the lunch that they didn't take time to eat or whatever but or you would go eat lunch and then finish your day that much later or whatever but uh, you know, i guess the, the challenge with some of those assignments ron is you were living in london at the time so thamesville london to thamesville by highway would well be... they didn't we didn't drive to thamesville i think they sent us out there in a company vehicle or i think no actually uh, maybe the conductor i went with the conductor or, uh, i just forget um 
Actually, now when I think about it, because I haven't thought about this for a while, but I think he was out there and I went out on the train and they stopped and let me off there. That's what it was. They initially didn't have a flagman and they realized that it was too uh, too difficult. They couldn't reach the trains on his radio and that. So you just rode the van out. So I uh, rode out in the van or I might have been on the head end. I just don't recall. <clears throat> but I remember getting off there at Thamesville and he was there with his personal vehicle. And, and then I was told what we were going to be doing. Interestingly about that, um, about two or three days before I was on a westbound train out of Toronto, I was uh, as a spare board uh, trainman, I was on this head of this train and we were uh, going by uh, Dixie and we were told to uh, park our train and bring our power back to Lambton. We had to pick up the wire gang. So uh, in addition to the train that we were handling, we picked up the wire gang that happened to be in West Toronto Yard there, the whole outfit the service cars and we had to take them with us because that was just the ice storm had just occurred and and it brought the wires down east of uh, or west of London I should say between London and Chatham so I actually handled that wire gang that was out there and you know a few days later they determined they needed a brakeman and I coincidentally got into that so Okay, so what were some other memorable spare board assignments that you had? Well, there were there were uh there were different. There were interesting ones. There were some on the on the conductor spare board as well that were interesting. But on the brakeman spare board, I uh, remember one time uh, being sent to Windsor, and uh, uh, a trainman had uh, booked sick on the train. He was at Windsor, and he had booked sick. And I got there, and the uh, the Windsor uh, because it was a trainman yardman. Then the Windsor had ordered the train, and it had left with. Uh, they used the Windsor yardman to fill in the crew. So I got there and they told me, oh, just you're just going to deadhead home on the next train. So I deadheaded to Windsor and deadheaded back and didn't do anything. I remember getting that, that particular trip. That was, that was two days pay for no day's work. So <laughs> That's that CPR math. That's CPR math. Yeah, that was one, a memorable one, I think. And, uh, oh, there, there was a, there were other situations that uh, arose from time to time that you'd yeah, if you you know if we got sent to Woodstock, uh, it was very lucrative because it was an outpost terminal. They had to pay you a day's pay to go there. They pay gas mileage if you drove your car, and they had to pay a hundred miles. So if you went there for the day, you'd drive to Woodstock and say work the day job, and then the end of the day you'd drive home. You'd put in the gas mileage both ways, um, twenty six miles. You got a hundred miles there, a hundred miles back plus a day's pay and the job. So you'd make the equivalent of a round trip and you'd be maybe eight or 10 hours or something doing yeah. it. So so a lot of guys probably sought that out. Well, if they saw there was a vacancy, they try to book rest for it. They usually, the deadheading usually was uh, figured for uh, uh, maybe an, allowing an extra hour or something, maybe three hours before the job started, they'd call the a deadhead. Now that doesn't mean that all of the jobs at Woodstock were spare board. That just means that there were vacancies. Just, oh no, you just filled in if somebody was sick. Because a regular guy would be on holidays or, or off sick. Yeah, or... something like that. No, I uh, I was on the spare board and three weeks after I started, they had a provision in the collective agreement that the junior man, it was all men at that time, they said the junior man would be forced to uh, outpost terminals nobody wanted. So I was forced to Woodstock. There was a job that started road switcher 1830. Uh, it was uh, and Saturday if required, uh, and we come in at noon. So after three weeks on the spare board, after I started, I was the junior man in the terminal, and they sent me to Woodstock, and I stayed there from that date, which would have it would have been the near the end of July, I guess, uh, right until the change of time at the end of October. 
but that was okay because I, uh, I got to learn about switching and I had the same people all the time and there were full crews in. So you learned how to switch cars and lots of little things that weren't in the book. So it wasn't all bad. Yeah, there was. There were things that were not in the book. Well, there were, and and, and one of the ones I like to tell people was that, that if we did have to come in Saturday, we, they let us come in at 12 noon instead of 18.30, which is 6.30 at night. That would allow you to get back home, say, uh, at a reasonable time, maybe supper time, and then you'd have the rest of the evening off and all day Sunday, you know, Monday until you started again. But 18.30 job, uh, when we come in at noon on Saturday, for we seem to have... Uh, in the days before event recorders, the speed limit seemed to be up a little bit. Instead of 35, if you had to go to Ingersoll, you might be doing 45. Well, 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 Ron, there's, get a, off the job. there's a reason for that. The, uh, the track conditions were more favorable on weekends. Well, the, the, track, was, the track was good for uh, speeds that were uh, uh, astonishingly higher than what was in the book from time to time. and uh, You decided to test that every once we, in a while. It was, yeah, so it was... Uh, it was a kind of an interesting thing, but you'd uh, roar around and get the job done as fast as possible and go home on Saturday. So how so how does a young enterprising brakeman in 1973, or I guess subsequent years, how does he eventually get off the spare board? How does that work? Well, depending on the job you desired. And uh, when I got f fairly uh, well into my uh uh, into seniority where I had a few behind me, I, I asked myself, do I want to work the spare board or would I prefer to work a regular job at Woodstock where I'm guaranteed a certain amount? So the Tilsonburg jobs I knew were were pretty lucrative, 12, 12 hours a day, six, uh, five days a week and eight hours on Saturday. So I bid one of them in and I worked that for all winter. I bid it in and rather than be on the spare board because I didn't stand for the pool. But other than that, you'd, if you bid in the... you you get off the spare board by standing for something better than the spare board. And by standing, you mean seniority. Your seniority. Now, some individuals would prefer to stay on the spare board, and they would stay on the spare board and never go to Woodstock for whatever reason. Some didn't like driving there or whatever. But I thought I would rather make a, a, a good living uh, there than chance the spare board, where you could make more, but you could also make less. So going back to the, the teacher analogy, going from spare board to a regular job is like um, a supply teacher getting a contract with the school board. So now you're the regular grade three teacher at whatever elementary. Yeah, and, and it was, uh, you know, besides the usual benefits, there were benefits to knowing who you're working with and, and that type of thing. But And you'd get to know the routine. Yeah, because you you'd be dealing with the same trackage and customers. Yeah, and yeah, you cars got to know the job, and, you got to know yeah. the people, but it was more about not even the 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 particulars of that job. It was the the nuances of railroading that you got to learn. Because uh, don't forget, if you were uh, if one was on the spare board and got called to go on a mainline train, uh, even if after you've been around six months, they could put you on the head end by yourself. You. You'd have an engineer who couldn't be with you all the time when you're out switching, and the conductor and another brakeman a mile away in the caboose. So uh, nobody was teaching you. Whereas on those jobs, you were usually all within a few feet of each other, or a couple hundred feet or whatever when you're switching. Uh, and you know, a guy could explain to you what you could do better or or whatever. And I learned a lot of tricks from those guys, the old guys there. A lot of times the conductors didn't do the work. The brakeman did the work, and the conductor was just kind of out there wandering around keeping track of the cars. And So if you had a good conductor, that conductor would 
shadow maybe the junior person and explain to them what they were doing and why. Would you say that you picked up quite a bit of the nuance of railroading just by being thrown into the fire? Yeah, and yeah. At, well, in particular, being thrown into a regular job at Woodstock. If I if I'd have stuck it out on the spare board, I might have learned less. But I knew I learned things about switching that a lot of uh, uh, they didn't teach in the rule book, but w that are now commonplace. And one of them was at Woodstock, you if you were switching at the scales and putting cars on the main track, it was all downhill to the CN Diamond. So we had uh, uh, a conductor on there that he showed me how you have to test the handbrake. They didn't talk about testing handbrakes in 1973. Like a push-pull test? Yeah, you push yeah. on it to see if the car stays. They yeah. didn't talk about that in 73, but I, I Just learned, wind her on and hope for the best. Yeah, and I mean, they yeah. just you know they just use their sort of feelings, not, uh, not the science of it. Now, I, I worked with, uh, later on, many years later in the early 1990s on the Aberdeen Turn, and I had a brakeman on there, a regular brakeman, and I showed him that whole thing at Water Down North and uh, that you got to test them, make sure they, that thing is going to sit because it's a stiff grade. Well, I was off on the Safety and Health Committee or something, so they made him the conductor and call a spare brakeman that day for the job. And he was going to show him how it's done there, and he made a fancy move at Water Down North. He didn't check that the handbrake was holding on the car, and the car got away from them. And it rolled down the end of the track, and it actually knocked the hinge derail off and ran out through the mainline switch and went two miles and derailed. But that's because he didn't do what I had taught him, that test. Give it a little push. The test to see if the car is going to stay. But but that was I, something I had learned from those guys at Woodstock and yeah. stayed with me my whole career. Speaking of handbrakes, I've heard of guys... Uh not putting on what you know we call it a good handbrake which is a good handbrake's one that retards and holds actually holds the car yeah um, did you ever run into a situation either yourself or with your mates when you were learning uh with loaded tank cars and the the slosh uh, well <laughs> mitig you know helping mitigate the, against the brake because i've heard those stories well not i didn't with tank cars per se but i had uh I had other situations over the years. I recall one where I was actually, when I was a conductor and should have known better, but I was at Zora and I was working the crane. And the assistant superintendent and the the road foreman engines, uh, I was I was going to need a ride back in, and they came over there to pick me up. And I put the van into one track, and I was going to put the, uh, the uh, a car we had a hold of into uh, another track. And... Uh, so I put the van in this one track, and then I was starting into the other track, and I look, and the van is starting to roll toward me. I just dumped the air. I should have known better. I should have put a brake on it and made sure it was going to stay. But anyways, I ran, and I got on the handbrake, and I had it stop before it plowed into the side of us. And these two guys' view was blocked because of where they were parked, so I didn't have to deal with them. So that was that was a reminder that you always have to do that. But Yeah. So what we're talking about there is for, for people who might be wondering what you mean about dumping the air is when when you uncoupled from the van, the hose bags would have parted and the van would have gone into emergency. And typically when you're switching, that would hold, that would hold. But for whatever reason, the air leaked out of the, uh, the brake uh, cylinder and the piston went in and she started to roll on yep, it. Yep, if you're on a grade. now, Especially with roller bearings. And I have been taught right from the start, never trust the air to hold one car. Even two cars, it's not a good idea. The the I was always taught at least three or more before you say the air will hold it for a couple of minutes. 
you better put a handbrake or put a chip under the wheel or something. But now, I mean, the, the rule's very clear. you got to test it. Well, that was Lac-Megantic changed all that. Yeah, it did. Yeah. But, I mean, it was good railroading versus sloppy railroading before oh, yeah. that. And, uh, yeah. um, but anyway, yeah, that's... I, I mentioned the tank car slosh. I've heard stories where, uh, where uh, a crew member has put on a handbrake but not a quote-unquote good handbrake. Basically, just gave it one, two, and skip a few and a couple more turns. And uh, the the um, having spotted a loaded tank car, of course, you've still got the slosh happening, and the slosh was actually enough to move the car against the loose handbrake. Well, it's interesting. It was so, sloshing was such an issue that I I didn't have that happen with a handbrake, but I remember being on an acid train going into the siding of Coakley for for nine sixteen, and we had uh, this old engineer that was on there and. Uh, he put the brake on down at the west end of the siding. We were just creeping down there, and he stopped the thing with the engine brakes, but the sloshing printer pushed us by the pot signal, with the little signal in the siding. Just the sloshing on those. We had 36 cars of sulfuric acid in the van, nothing else. And uh, he had to dump He dumped the air to get it on there quick before it. So he was just using the engine He just used the engine brake coming down there. We were just crawling, and he put the engine brake on, and then when he got to the end, he, we were about a car length from the signal. Wow. And he put the engine brake on, which was on, I think we had three four-axle engines. Pretty good effective brake, but not enough for that sloshing there. And uh, So he so put anyway, the train in emergency. Put, he put the train in emergency because we got one bunt from it, and we were half a car from the signal. We couldn't withstand another one. So, and that was 916 was going by at this point. So we would have potentially went into the side of him or something, depending on how far it pushed us. But. Yeah. Okay. So that, that explains spare board. So you eventually got off the spare board then? Yeah. Off the spare board into the East Pool as a brakeman. And then... Uh, east Pool is main line. The east Pool is the main line. And the way the main line trains were crewed was they had a pool uh, of, of conductors and trainmen on each each pool and uh that's out of london oh to london so east is toronto west is to windsor west yep and i uh, was in the east pool initially and later the west but you your crew a conductor and two trainmen or later a conductor and one trainman would uh, work your way up uh, you'd be on a list based on when you come in you go to the bottom and as they called trains they would come off the top um, and then after i'd been in the pool for a while they were calling me to be conductor on eastbound trains sometimes and and then i bid in the conductor spare board it was really lucrative i worked a lot in the winter snow plows and in the summer uh like the reason i bid in the conductor spare board i would rather be a con every trip be conductors uh, rates than uh, which were more than brakeman's rates as opposed to being on the spare board or in the pool as a brakeman and half your trips would be at the trainman's rate and so that's how you got off there anyway just as as people there was a very quick uh uh, retirement or promotional uh, uh, velocity that you might call it because a lot of individuals decided they weren't going to stick around when they went to reduce crews they've been used to sitting in the caboose with their uh, penny loafers on or whatever and not doing much and all of a sudden they were going to be doing everything that tail and dreaming had to do yeah all of a sudden they're 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 discovering that they have to work in the rain. they didn't want to do that so they just took their pensions and uh yeah um, just before we go, I just wanted to ask you, do you have any idea how many, again, it's all men in the mid-70s, how many running trades employees would have worked out of London in the mid-70s? Well, I'd be... I, I, the pools, the spare the board. Pool, the pools were quieter in the summer, but in the winter, we'd have 
I'm trying to remember, but I'm thinking maybe anywhere from 10 to 12 crews in the East Pool. So that would so that would be uh, engineers in their pool. They had one more than us and the tail end, and you'd have a conductor and two trainmen. So that would if you you know whatever if you'd add all that up, and then the West Pool had eight or nine, um, and then you had a spare board of probably 20 or 25 individuals. Then you had all your jobs at Woodstock, and you had initially you had uh, five yard assignments in London when I started. Hundred men. Oh, I'd have to do the math easily. Yeah. Or more. Yeah. And then they got rid of the yard jobs down to one job. So and the Woodstock jobs went to a short line to other carriers. So yeah. And that's just running trades. And the office was full of people, and yeah. uh, got the roundhouse shop guys. Shop guys around the clock, and Woodstock yeah. had two chargemen. Uh, Two carmen, I think, one carmen at Woodstock and two in St. Thomas, and uh, all those jobs are gone. I mean, there were scores of jobs just fell by the wayside over the years. Yeah, Woodstock, uh, Albert, what was his last name? Albert Crane. Was Albert the, Crane, the chargeman. Yeah, and the day, uh, the night chargeman was uh, was uh, Jimmy Walker. Yeah, the chargeman is now a thing of the past. Uh, the chargeman looked after the locomotives and the vans that were on the shop track there at. Yeah, Woodstock, and then you had section crews. You had lots of them as well, and uh, yeah. signal maintainers working out of Woodstock. And Albert Crane was a nice fella. He was a nice he, old uh, guy. He was a very nice guy. Yeah, he uh, he let me help him clean. I think I've told the story before. I I, I grew up just uh, blocks from the yard, and that was my favorite destination with my bicycle. And I got to know when Albert was around doing the van supply and. Uh, I remember sitting in an RS-18 and helping him clean windows on a van and sitting and up in the cupola. And he was very conscientious, too. He, yeah. He did. He he left things really clean. He usually put water on the floor and mop out the floor of the engines and yeah. stuff, too. He was, was very he was very understanding and very kind to a young boy that was uh, fascinated by all things railroad. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah. it was a simpler time back then. It was. And Al- Albert uh, has left us uh, since. I think he passed away... Uh, few years back but he was uh, if I recall he was in his 90s when he died or 91 yeah. or something but but anyway yeah he was a he was quite a guy and and we had some uh, individuals that would uh, create a lot of unnecessary work for him we had uh, some uh, early in my career that liked to imbi- imbibe a bit and uh, one guy I remember he would come down the hill to St. Mary's and put the engine brake on and skid the wheels and Albert would they had something called grinding shoes, and they were these grinding, they were these brake shoes to put on the engine that would grind the wheels and grind these flat spots out. So uh, working that 1830 job, we'd have the yard engine, and we'd be towing the 8100 around with flat spots, and Albert had the grinding shoes on, and we'd take them down to the transfer and back and forth in the yard with Machine all our switches. the flat spots out of He the was wheels. trying to grind those flat spots off, and he yeah. was in there past his quitting time. He was on a salary. and yeah. To keep uh, that guy out of trouble that had too much to drink. So. Yeah, oh dear. Well, Ron, I'm glad you got off the spare board and you got into regular assignment and making that cheddar. And then into management for a short time and then out of management and now uh, into the best job I've had, which is uh, reminiscing uh, with less pay but excellent conditions. Thanks, Ron. We'll do it again. Okay. Ciao for now. Detector out.